Hi, I'm Michael, and welcome to Beyond the Screenplay. Today, we are talking about A Few Good Men, the 1992 film directed by Rob Reiner, screenplay by Aaron Sorkin, based on his play of the same name. I'm joined by the Lessons from the Screenplay team, Trisha Rand. Hello, everybody. Brian Bittner. Hello, hello. And Alex Cayeros. Hi. So my first question for you guys is, <laughs> do you guys remember how we came to be making a video for Lessons from the Screenplay about A Few Good Men? Because I cannot remember how it started. Trisha. Yeah, that's on, that's on me. Um, okay. It was a regular pitch during just like a meeting where we were taking new pitches. I don't know why I thought of it. I mean, this is one of my favorite movies and I've probably seen it, it feels like 20 times. Um, but I thought it was really interesting how like well contained the climax is. And of course, as a courtroom drama, we expect that. And, and I just thought it was a really interesting example of essentially what is a final battle, which is, you know, and how we ended up talking, what sort of the framework we use to talk about it in the video. I don't know. I didn't, it, would, it wasn't meant to be like, just like sort of a softball right into your little Aaron Sorkin heart, Michael, <laughs> but it definitely landed quite obviously. So uh, I feel like you kind of jumped at the pitch pretty quickly. Yeah, I, I don't, I literally don't remember anything other than like, it feels like I woke up and I was watching A Few Good Men and like live blogging to you guys on Slack about my feelings about everything while it was happening, while I was like rewatching it. So cool. Great. Well, now that's been I answered. I don't think that's how it happened, but okay. <laughs> we drugged you saying, while we pitched to you, I guess. <laughs> you woke up later. <laughs> I, just, I remember on Slack complaining about Tom Cruise's hair moving every time he swears, but I don't mm -hmm. remember what led me to that <laughs> part. Cool. So now we, we've answered that. And yes, I do have a soft spot for Sorkin. I feel like Sorkin is, for me, as many people, kind of the first in to screenwriting because his writing style is noticeable and makes people that aren't necessarily always aware of the fact that movies are written by people, mm -hmm. uh, they can detect that and be like, something was different. Those people were speaking <laughs> differently. And then you kind of put together like, oh, it was a different writer. He's um, like, well, yeah, he's like the only, at least from our generation, the only like household name screenwriter who isn't also the filmmaker. You know, you have your Tarantino's and your Kevin Smith and whatever, all the way back to, you know, Billy Wilder or something. But at least in I think it, for our age, Sorkin is the only one who like, oh, we know him because of his writing period. Now he's also a director, obviously, but like it's just right. an interesting thing. So it's uh, it's a it's like like you said, the gateway into screenwriting for some people. And so for me, this movie was, you know, I knew about it because of the famous line, right? People like you can't handle the truth. It had always struck me before I was really into Sorkin as like, it's that old movie from the early 90s about <laughs> people doing things. And so once I was into Sorkin, then I really wanted to go back and watch it because, you know, it's the first Sorkin screenplay. Mm -hmm. It's his first movie that got made. And so it, it is really interesting watching it through that lens of this is early Sor Sorkin and it's super Sorkin-y. Uh, <laughs> and it, it's just, it's interesting to track the things that uh, stayed the same with his writing, some things that have changed over mm -hmm. time and how it's executed. Because I think, you know, Sorkin dialogue at this point is kind of known for being rapid fire and the mm -hmm. West Wing kind of, you know, canonized this like walk and talk and we're just going to be moving all around. And, you know, watching this time, I remember watching there's the scene with Jack Nicholson as Colonel Jessup and he's in his his office with his like three, there's two crony people and they're kind of like <laughs> talking about like how they're gonna like 
trick the system and make this work. And I was like, this is a Sorkin scene in slow motion. Like mm. Jack mm-hmm. Nicholson is doing this so slowly. I don't, I feel uncomfortable because I'm not <laughs> used to seeing it. So it's interesting to see how, how his style has changed and how the approach to his style has changed. But so I'm curious for you guys, Brian and Alex, uh, when did you first see this film? Did you know Sorkin? Well, were you watching it through that lens? Brian, I'm curious. Uh, it's a good question. I don't remember. I know I didn't see it like way back when it came out, but it was one of those things that was at, you know, what I was 10 when this movie came out. So it was like just old enough that things were in the zeitgeist, like that you can't handle the truth. I was like, I knew that was a thing. I knew it was from this movie. It's even possible. My mom had it on at one point and I saw some of it or something, but it wouldn't be until probably like college that I sat down and watched it at which point I would have been familiar with some Sorkin like with sports night and a few other things. And then like, I loved it and bought the DVD and then don't think I watched it again until a few months ago when we started. So it was nice to, I feel like that's a recurring theme for me is like, I watched this movie 15 years ago and haven't watched it again until we said, let's do a video. And you know, but genuinely it is really nice to revisit some of these movies and actually sit with them and think about them and talk about them rather than just, I watched it once in a week where I watched 20 movies or something, Mm -hmm. you know? Cool. Yeah. And what about you, Alex? I had not seen it. Okay. I had, mm. I only knew the Jack Nicholson line, <laughs> so <laughs> uh, I was really glad to have a reason to watch it this summer. Uh, and it was fun, actually, because I watched it again this week because it's been so long since we first started talking about the script. And I liked it a lot more the second time because I realized like there's just so even though they're saying it's slower than West Wing, <laughs> like the there's a there's so much density in some of these Sorkin lines where it's like just kind of almost like the literary like quality mm-hmm. of it is you can't even really appreciate on the first viewing because there's just so much being said so quickly and so much is packed with meaning and kind of callbacks and jokes that that kind of like fly over your head in that certain way on a first like just taking it in viewing so yeah i, I was happy to both have a reason to watch it and to watch it twice uh because mm-hmm. i think that mm-hmm. that made me really like it a lot more for yeah, sure it's this is like to me, one of the best examples of like a, a Sorkin scene, just really any screenwriting scene that has a ton of expository and plot work to do all the time mm-hmm. and yet manages to be incredibly entertaining because the characters in the room are really interesting characters and you want to see how they're going to deliver this information. I think a lot about the character introductions here, uh, but especially the introduction of when Kathy meets um, Galloway for the first time, right? So we've already met both of these characters as individuals. And that's Tom Cruise and Demi Moore. Yeah. Yes, that's correct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah the, names, so- the names in this film are <laughs> tough <laughs> to track. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so you're right. Fair, fair. Uh, so Tom Cruise, we've already met him playing softball with his softball league. And it's a great character intro. Right. Doing the like Sorkin loves his smartest guy in the room thing. You know, like, oh I don't need to God. leave this baseball thing to like tell you all the things that are going to happen in the next 24 hours and da da da. And look how cool I am. And I'm Tom Cruise and I'm still kind of 80s <laughs> Tom Cruise, but it's the early 90s. <laughs> yeah. Maybe I'll take a quick detour here actually to talk about that for a minute because. <laughs> So I read the screenplay actually for the first time this year while we were working on this video. It's a really fascinating read because there's so little 
direction for the actors as they perform lines. There's mm-hmm. almost none. What you get when you look at the screenplay is just pages of dialogue, essentially, with like very few action lines. And the action lines that are indicated are like, he crosses to the other side of the room, which doesn't necessarily yeah, give sure. you a lot of like character stuff. But the character introductions are a lot. <laughs> so <laughs> it's, it's really right. interesting technique where Sorkin sets up the characters right when we first meet them and then goes on to tell us Mm. nothing sort of about them from there in the screenplay and sort of like that chunk that you get is the is what the actors are going off of in their performance at every moment so for example the scene where we meet kathy uh tom cruise's character is the scene before it uh joanne galloway you know demi moore has just asked to for the um board or whatever to like choose a lawyer to represent dawson and downey and they go we'll find the right man for the job and then it goes cut to all caps the right man for the job <laughs> oh in the script <laughs> yes 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 <laughs> and then here i'll read it to you his name is lieutenant junior grade daniel alistair caffey and it's almost impossible not to like him Caffey's in his late 20s, 15 months out of Harvard Law School and a brilliant legal mind waiting for a courageous spirit to drive it. He is at this point in his life passionate about nothing except maybe softball. (laughs) This is written in the script, Uh, but 90s very much. And there are a lot of 90s things about this movie. But Tom Cruise took that, obviously ran with it. And it's I don't know, it's just an interesting choice that like enabled these performances that are now iconic. Well, and if I'm mm. not mistaken, that that's kind of more of a theater thing mm-hmm. in general also. I mean, especially the the no action lines, you know, there's just very little mm-hmm. like blocking usually. And the few plays that I've read, I, I lived with someone that was a theater director and he made me read some plays and that was good. Uh, <laughs> so, I, so I feel like that, you know, I wonder if that's just part of the carryover of Sorkin starting in theater. Right. So many of his stories are plays. And I think that's, why it's it's also important to acknowledge the directors that have to work with a Sorkin uh, script, like Rob uh-huh. Reiner, who did such a great job here, because it's you have to turn mm-hmm. pages and pages of dialogue into cinema and people in rooms talking and make it right engaging. Yeah, yeah, it was the first thing I thought of when you said that there's not a lot of action lines and stuff. Was yeah, it's it was a play, so it would make sense that he would not write a lot of new you know action lines and stuff. Um, I think it was one of our Patreon Q&As where we talked about, you know, different screenwriters have different amounts of direction that they want to give. Some are like, here's the dialogue. You figure out the rest of it. And some are the opposite. They're like, and then the camera goes through the window and then we see this thing happening, you know, and I think that like both of those extremes can be frustrating (laughs) for a director who's like, give me more or you gave me too much. I'm not going to do any of the stuff like mm-hmm. this is crazy. So it's just interesting to see what, you know, different screenwriters, how they handle that. It was interesting to hear that there's such a, you know, kind of not action liney introduction to Kathy and other characters, because that also reminds me of when I've read plays where it, it does seem like that space is used for character description and like almost like helping mm-hmm. the actors just give them almost like a little bio, a little summary right up front. Here's how to think about this character. So yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense that he would write in that way. Well, and it's not really in vogue anymore. Like if I, you know, reading a screenplay now, 
a modern you know script in 2020 if i got something that looked like this i actually cut a little bit in the middle of it out because i didn't want to read two <laughs> whole paragraphs there's a whole right. chunk in the middle about the lawyers that he's like hitting ground balls to on his softball team like the 27 Yankees they're not but they could probably hold their own against a group of Air Force dentists like <laughs> it is so long calm down oh, Aaron Lord. <laughs> and if I read this in a modern script I would immediately bump on it and and you know probably make a note in my coverage of something <laughs> along the lines like this is full of unfilmables like this is not useful right right, right. I have I have also pulled the the intro to Jessup, which is like also a paragraph long. You know, a lot of people, I think, have tried to emulate Aaron Sorkin's style. And along with a handful of other screenwriters from the 90s, he has become a very influential force in sort of writing, especially in terms of dialogue writing mm. in American cinema. And yet some of what we see in A Few Good Men is not at all, it doesn't feel modern. It feels really dated. It hasn't aged well, both on the page and on the screen, I think. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I was just glancing at the the social network screenplay because I was curious how he mm. introduces like Mark Zuckerberg and Erica in that first scene. It's better. It's only like two sentences. Maybe I'll just read it really quick. Mark Zuckerberg is a sweet looking 19 year old whose lack of any physically intimidating attributes masks a very complicated and dangerous anger. He has trouble making eye contact and sometimes it's hard to tell if he's talking to you or to himself. So I feel like that uh -huh. that does feel more modern and is a bit yeah. more in that realm of like Definitely. describing Filmable. right exactly what you can see and less like here's that character's bio. Well, I think it's also like informative to the actor, but it's also informative to the reader of like this line may just be some these words. But if you're thinking about it through the context of what I just told you, then you, you're picturing that line being said a certain way, you know? Yeah. yeah. While we're on the topic of just kind of things that didn't quite age well, I feel like <laughs> the thing that I <laughs> I'm just so sick of seeing and maybe it was still more like fresh at the moment this movie came out is like the the cocky hot shot is always eating a freaking apple like why are they always eating an apple mm. they always have an apple that they're like dealing with in their like cocky hot shot scene and like that is like a big thing in this movie and then there's also like uh like the thinking montage when he like goes around dc to like think about his life and it's just there's just there's the like, very like specific 90s things that just stand out right I have a bunch of great great things i want to say about this movie but i just want to get those out of the way while we're here also tom cruise constantly does the like wait but i'm confused because you just told me thing a so how could thing b also be true how could i'm i don't you're gonna have to explain it to me it's like he does that con constantly throughout the movie and it's hilarious i mean part of it is him being a lawyer in the courtroom but i guess he does it outside of the courtroom too it's just it's just a funny because he does it with such like a furrowed <laughs> brow like it's and I love it. Don't get me wrong. I'm not. I'm not knocking it. There's all the wonderful Tom Cruise things, and you know the way he yells, and yeah, yeah, <laughs> he's yeah. really intense in this yeah. movie. Yeah, <laughs> but it seems warranted. So I know we have all been quarantining, working from home since basically March at this point. And if my Instagram feed is any indication, I am not alone in accumulating many new quarantine house plants <laughs> over the past several months. <laughs> I've also acquired new animals. But houseplants are not as easy to care for as you might think. They sometimes die for mysterious reasons, or you overwater them or underwater them. I've definitely killed some succulents by giving them lots and lots of water. Oh. <laughs> 
<laughs> Poor plants. <laughs> they just fall over and die. You drowned them. <laughs> so I thought it might be wise to actually learn how to care for plants properly using the Skillshare original class, Plants at Home, Uplift Your Spirit and Your Space, taught by the delightful Christopher Griffin, a.k.a. Plant Queen. Mm. Yes. It's a fun, breezy, refreshing series on how to choose the right plants for your space and how to take care of them once you bring home your green girls and green queens, as he says. Nice. <laughs> wow. Skillshare offers thousands of inspiring classes for creative and curious people on topics including illustration, design, photography, video, freelancing, and more. So explore your creativity at Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay and get a two-month free trial of premium membership. Once again, that's Skillshare.com slash beyond the screenplay. Thanks to Skillshare for sponsoring this episode. About the apple, just quickly, Alex. I love it when characters eat on screen, as we know. I mean, by now feels cliche, but at the time, you know, works for this character intro. Again, we've already met him, but returning to that scene where he meets Demi Moore's character Galloway for the first time. The thing about an apple is it's such an obtrusive thing to be eating, right? You have to eat it with your hands, essentially. It's loud, it's crunchy, like it it is impolite in its very definition of like Like, pick a thing to eat right obnoxious there's a reason it's always an apple Mm. yeah Yeah. it makes sense (laughs) yeah i mean not only and it it also is like a a bit a nice bit of action to do but like one of my favorite everything about tom cruise's like movements in that scene are are excellent but i i also like this the moment where he's got an apple core in his hand and he doesn't have a place to throw it right and so he's like looking around for a trash can as Galloway is talking to him and again delivering dialogue and expo- like critical mm. exposition. You actually really need to hear it and understand it. But of course, Cappy is not paying attention. And then she just in one motion takes the garbage can out from under her desk, holds mm. it across the desk to him. He puts the apple core in it and she puts it back. And neither one of them misses a beat. It says as much about her as it does about him. It's right. a great moment. Yeah. Yeah. And I also think part of the design of Cappy is how much he wants to show you, you being whatever character he's interacting with and you, the audience, that he is only 60% paying attention to the situation. He has better things to do. He doesn't really have time for you. Mm -hmm. So it's like whether he is doing his softball thing or whether he's eating an apple or whether he's just sort of, you know, off in his own world, he's always being like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm not really, I don't really want to be here. I don't need to be here. I, you know, I'm just in my own, doing my own thing, da da da. Which is then why it's the thing that Jessup uses in the Cuba scene to screw with him is to say, you know, you have to ask me nicely as in like, you have to stop being you for a second and sort of bow to me. So it's sort of using his, I don't know if weakness is the right word, but it's like using his character traits mm-hmm. against him. And his kind of his lack of interest in all that like Navy military stuff is also a great audi- mm-hmm. audience surrogate tool because he actually doesn't understand a lot of the terminology and the, you know, what, what's a code red. So he, he can serve that purpose of being the, the guy asking questions that need to be explained to him. Well, and mm-hmm. it, it's a wonderful characterization also because it creates like it gives him a power move, right? Where 90% of the time he's not paying attention, but the 10% of the time when he is paying attention, he's completely in charge and knows exactly what's happening. And it becomes like, right. so thinking about the scene later, 
where he's talking to Galloway, I'm pretty sure. And she's like explaining like, you don't understand this. You don't understand this. You don't understand this. And he immediately comes back with, well, no, because boom, boom, boom. And gives her like a legal rundown that he perfectly understands mm. their situation, actually. And it creates this this power shift in the scene where 90% of the time, Galloway's talking to him. He's not listening. But then when he is listening, he's a force to be reckoned with. And it creates a wonderful setup for what ultimately is the payoff in the courtroom scene where he really starts to care. Right. It's the same thing in the social network when Mark goes to leave the classroom and then the teacher's like, oh, we lost one already. And Mark's like, oh, actually, you just have to do da 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 And then he leaves. The guy's like, uh, he's right. Let me see how he got there. Again, it's like Sorkin loves his just smartest guy in the room who barely needs to pay attention. And he still is going to like win really every loves argument. assholes, doesn't he? they make for good drama Uh well and and it's it's wielding kind of pacing and energy to like draw your attention also so Mm -hmm. like it's as as you were saying trisha it it makes you focus in then when they aren't when they do have that switch in behavior and that's usually captured rhythmically also where it's like ppp ppp and then there's that like big turning point that draws you in and it's like oh this is the important part and now I'm paying attention to it because it's such a big shift in that pacing. Mm-hmm. I was just looking up because I was really curious. That scene where he has the apple, um, <laughs> I got really fixated. And also, I feel like we have to cinema sins. That's become one of their like go to like, let's have the director said, let's have this person be eating an apple. It'll make them look like an asshole. Uh, and I feel like that's, <laughs> that's like in every one of their videos because there's always some asshole eating an apple. It's, it's always there. Yeah. <laughs> So the apple is not in the screenplay, which is kind of what I suspected. Mm. Yeah. And so I think that's just a a quick way to underline the importance of the director and the actors taking what's there in the text and making it into something that's bigger and better. Because like you said, that interaction between them is good character work for him and for Joe, for her character. And like that's not on the page, but in leaving room for that and giving it to good people that you trust, they can make that kind of thing better. So I just wanted to highlight that. It's great because that that trash bin moment feels like a Sorkin moment, but it wasn't mm-hmm. Sorkin. It, it was kind of taken out of his dialogue. That's great. Yeah. Someone out there has some religious, you know, thing about this. Like, oh, he's the one eating the apple. Then she's the one who throws it out. Like, <laughs> I guarantee you someone has some wacko read on this. And it makes me wonder, because I would be willing to bet it's the kind of moment that you don't discover on the day. It's the kind of moment you discover in rehearsal is right. the thing. So I, yeah. I don't mm. know how much rehearsal went into this, but that kind of moment that is not in the screenplay, but you know, you have to have enough apples for the like prop department or whatever. Like you have to have the, that moment for continuity all planned out to shoot it on the day Mm. it's not something you can leave to the actors to come up with it it, no matter how many takes you do it has to be essentially scripted or already planned and so it is clearly something that rob reiner and the actors and potentially sorkin if he was involved in this came up with in rehearsal so it also speaks to the value of rehearsal and i would guess there was a decent amount of rehearsal work done on a lot of these kinds of things because some of the things that I notice that I think of uh, are actually not script about the performances are actually not scripted mm. when well, and, and I feel like the what I understand anyway about the kind of cultural context of this movie is that I, I feel like it was an opportunity for Tom Cruise and to be more to kind of 
be taken more seriously. And mm. maybe that's, I guess, just my perspective of it. But but I think there is this like, you know, this prestige thing that comes with like, this is a play it did really well. And now we're going to make it drama. into a drama. Right. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I could see and would imagine them wanting to take it seriously. And we know Tom Cruise is pretty into the things when he commits to a project nowadays anyway he, he, he takes hard. it very seriously he's, he's going to space for yeah. us <laughs> 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 to entertain us <laughs> but yeah so that that kind of brings up what your pitch was for this this video trisha of mm. this courtroom drama this thing that we kind of don't really have a ton of anymore or at least not yeah. in this form and and we as a team talked about this a lot and that it, it's cool because it's as as you pointed out in your pitch, there are, are all these built-in elements that make for great drama, right? Where it's this idea of the battleground and there's a limitation on the places you can go and the things you can do. And so you're having to fight this conflict in a confined space. And I think it, it highlights another thing that's unique about Sorkin is that he does love his courtroom dramas, whether it's explicitly like the most recent, you know, the trial of the Chicago Seven, or kind of, mm-hmm. you know, like like the Social Network is basically a, a yeah. secret courtroom mm-hmm. drama kind of a thing. It's a deposition yeah. room drama. It's interesting to go back to the beginning and see just kind of a, a linear, straightforward Sorkin courtroom drama, and then compare it to things like the Social Network or Trial of the Chicago Seven, where he gets a little bit more of that nonlinear film aspect going and like when those come together just right i think it makes for a really fun exciting experience and creates a kind of crazy momentum that you might not think would be in a courtroom drama mm-hmm. right well yeah something that chicago 7 and social network both do is they're sort of we're in the trial for most of the movie but we're jumping around chronologically uh, so that we are not just like sitting with people talking. We're, oh, now here's when this scene happened. And now we're going to show you the scene for five or 10 minutes. And we're going to jump back to the questioning and all that. But what I think it's cool about Few Good Men is, and any good courtroom drama is the whole like second half of the movie or the last two acts of the movie or something. Like it's a weird sort of maybe like five act structure. I'm not sure. But second half ish of the movie is all in the courtroom. It does feel like a battle. It feels like I'm watching like two towers extended (laughs) cut or something where it's like by the time we do so much work Mm -hmm. to get here that by the time we get here, I'm happy to be watching the battle for an hour because I have all of the the knowledge I have, I have everything I need going into it. And now I'm excited to actually see things start happening. And of course, things escalate in the way you would want. You have your your smaller witnesses, then you have your medium witnesses, then you have Markinson, and then, of course, boom, Jessup, last 20 minutes of the movie. Uh, so it's not just like, well, now we're in the courtroom for an hour, so get ready for talking. It's like it, things, things, the pacing is good, but then also the escalation is really well, good. And it's interesting, since we're talking about the structure, uh, there actually are some quote-unquote flashbacks in this script because... right. In the first half of it, it's not quite chronological because we go back in time to meet Jessup, which is odd. It's really interesting because yeah, yeah it happens nowhere else mm. in the film. But at that moment in the film, like we're seeing what happened before the code red, um, mm-hmm. and it and it's after we've met Joe and Kathy, right, right. Uh, so right. that's that's just really. I, I remember when I was actually scrubbing through the film. Uh, as an editor for the for the video i was like wait a minute this happens here but we 
we went back in time. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah. Uh-huh. It, it, it works. I, I didn't really question it when I first saw the film, but it, it is it stands out as the only time the film does that. It goes actually back to before the beginning of the movie, right? right. Because like the movie opens where af- it's after Santiago is dead and like Joe is basically trying to figure out how to try the case or, or get them to take the case seriously. And then we go back in time to the decision to give the code red, right. which is be- outside of the mm. bounds of the entire timeline of the rest of the movie. And we could very easily meet Jessup for the first time when Kathy does, if we really wanted to stick with Kathy's POV, when they go down to Guantanamo Bay and we, we could meet Markinson and Jessup and Kendrick all at the same time, you know, Jessup's other two senior officers uh, that are there. But we don't. We have this sort of scene where we get a behind the scenes look at what actually happened. And so we know sort of from the beginning, or we can pretty well guess that, you know, they ordered the code red. And that is exactly what happened to Santiago. And it's just I don't know if I would do it that way, but it it does provide a really great character intro for all three of those and helps us, I think, really understand who they are. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that is interesting because it, it, as you're saying, it announces them as the antagonist. And maybe maybe we do need that certainty to be rooting for Mm -hmm. Tom Cruise. Cappy. Good guys. (laughs) But it also introduces kind of like the trio of you know, Markinson, Jessup and Kendrick uh, and and you see the beginnings of Markinson feeling uneasy about what Jessup is asking Kendrick to do. I also just love how Kiefer Sutherland, especially during this era, always plays the kind of vaguely white supremacist, (laughs) (laughs) like militia dude. Uh Uh-huh. Even as far back as Stand By Me, like when he's like still a teenager. (laughs) Yeah. His character intro says, if you asked him, he'd tell you that the gates to heaven are guarded by the U.S. Marine Corps. (laughs) <laughs> that's pretty good though yeah. <laughs> like, that's a pretty good Agreed. yeah yeah and well and also jack nicholson's casting as jessup is i mean it's it's why that line is the line we all know about you right know? and and i remember there's a scene when kathy is first meeting with him over lunch or whatever mm-hmm. and he's, he says something like uh this heat is making me absolutely crazy uh-huh. and it just it, it feels it's like so shining it's You're so right. like I am so terrified of you. Like, you're going to kill me, Jack Nicholson. Guys, you know what I like saying? I like saying movie. (laughs) Movie. Say it with me. Movie. 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 And we're in luck because movie sponsored this episode. So I get to say movie a bunch now. What is movie, you ask? Well, shut up for a second. I'll tell you. Movie is a curated streaming service showing films from all around the world. Every day, movie premieres a new film, whether it's a timeless classic, a cult favorite, or an acclaimed masterpiece, a movie you've been dying to see or one you've never heard of before. Werner Herzog premiered his new film on movie, which meant for a couple months we were blessed with seeing him on our social media feed saying, you can watch my new film on movie. (laughs) (laughs) Who doesn't love that? With movie, each and every film is hand-selected. They literally pick it up and shove it into the system. So every day you get something new to watch it's like your own personal film festival right in your home make some popcorn and some weird coffee and then waft those smells all around your home theater and you're all set but wait there's more <gasps> you can try movie free for 30 days at movie.com slash beyond the screenplay that's m-u-b-i.com slash beyond the screenplay for a whole month of great cinema for free Thank you to Movie for sponsoring this episode. I need a nap. Why would the coffee be weird? Because there's always weird, expensive, strange coffee in like these oh, art house theaters. Fancy coffee. Fancy coffee. I see. Yeah. 
I get it. Mubi coffee. Ah, Mubi. Mubi, Mubi. If we can talk about the design of Jessup for a minute. Sure. His first, if, so we're talking about that scene where he's in the, his own office with his two other officers and they're trying to decide what to do about Santiago. So we hear Santiago's voice reading one of his letters, like begging for a transfer off the base. And then it bleeds into the voice of Jessup reading the last couple of lines of the letter out loud. And then he drops the letter on his desk and says, who the fuck is PFC William T. Santiago? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it just, it's such a great signal immediately to the audience that this is the bad guy, right? Like, here's profanity in the first line that we hear from him, but it's so unsympathetic. We've heard and seen visuals mm-hmm. of how difficult life is for Santiago and how desperate he is to get off the base. And the conclusion at all of that is who the fuck is this guy? And we can tell right away that there's not going to be, this is going to go really badly for Santiago. And that creates this. And and then, of course, he has that wonderful smackdown of Markinson later in the scene where he like sends Kendrick out and is like, we're going to train him. I'll talk to you about that later. Markinson, let me talk to you. And then they, you know, we're old colleagues and whatever. And if you're uncomfortable about that, too bad. Right, like don't ever question me in front of a subordinate again. Yeah, again, he's so scary. Yeah, I didn't know we were cursing, but he says, "Oh, sorry." This (laughs) is a few good men. (laughs) He says, "This fucking heat is making me absolutely crazy." Yeah, it's actually what the line is. (laughs) You went back. (laughs) I was really upset. I had to cut out the fucking. I could go back and make some uncensored edits to (laughs) things I've said in the past half hour because it's also how he is intimidating. Like right. that mm. is that is so much fun that it is, you know, that moment that you're talking about where he sends out Kiefer Sutherland and just has that moment with him. And he, he's like polite a little bit about it and just mm-hmm. like, hey, like we're buddies. So do not ever be like this ever again. Like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. like seeing that, you know, there's just like a confidence that comes from like absolute power. And I think playing him that way and casting Jack Nicholson sets that up and sets up something that you brought up uh when writing the script trisha of like the the battle of ideologies because that Mm. that scene is also showing like yeah santiago is screwed and also this is why these are who these people are these are what they believe in their relationship to their jobs and the people around them and all this stuff that will ultimately play a big role in in everything that comes later Mm -hmm. so it is just like a, a nice really efficient exposition scene and it's 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 not really shy about that either. Like that's one right. of those things that Sorkin is okay with. Is like this scene is here for information, but there's enough drama and interpersonal conflict and the way it's executed and the rhythm that it makes it entertaining while you're also just getting a huge big like exposition dump. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. There's also like there's those Sorkin touches that kind of give you almost like a humorous beat in the middle of the for exposition sure. dump. You know, when, mm. when Josh Molina is called in for a second, <laughs> and he's, he's it's just to make a point basically. Right. Yeah. Right. It's like pure Sorkin, the, the very West wing, that moment. Yeah. Where he's like, get the president on the phone. We're yeah. surrendering our base in Cuba. <laughs> right. And, and the performance is like, okay, <laughs> never mind. Okay. <laughs> yeah. See, and like, I feel like that, all of that is hard for me watching it, knowing Sorkin and seeing mm-hmm. it happening that slowly almost draws more attention to that. The the performative aspect of it, like it's of just it's so over the top uh-huh. that I'm a little bit like, why would he be 
like doesn't he have better things to do? I don't know. But, so I feel like that's why sometimes speeding up Sorkin can kind of breeze past that. Like, does it make sense for these people to be spending this much time doing this thing that is counter right. to their like main point? But Jessup also, I think it works for me in that scene just because Jessup does seem like the kind of guy who would want to like, you know, fuck with you for a little while and like, uh-huh. sure. and, like and like do a drawn out thing just to make a point to rub it in your face, you know, so. It, mm-hmm. that works for me personally yeah well yeah and i think that um the other thing i think is interesting with jessup in the the cuba scene you know when the the protagonist and the antagonist actually like meet each other for the first time is how he responds to uh how re- he reacts to galloway to to demon Moore. Mm-hmm. i was thinking about her during this movie i was reminded of clarice starling from silence of the lambs where she is she is like a woman among in like the sea of men and the camera is always like she's on this elevator with like six foot tall dudes who are all in, ele- mm-hmm. you know, in uniform and stuff. And the scene with the um, autopsy where everyone's like, Oh, maybe she needs to leave the room, which she actually uses to her advantage at one point, which is cool. And, and of course, Lecter treats her, you know, not in the best way. So it's sort of like her gender is constantly used as this thing that sh- that's like an obstacle for her. And what I love here is that Galloway is never treated as anything other than a human being, uh, even when the three guys are like, you need to leave the room so we can talk about you behind your back. It's still, they're not like, <laughs> yeah. she's a woman. Let's not trust. Her. It's none of that kind of stuff, which I love. But then the one time where her gender is used to demean her is by Jessup when he's mm-hmm. like, hey, it's cool that you're in charge because it's sexy because there's nothing sexier than yada 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 we don't need to get into his line but um, <laughs> but i just think it's really it's really interesting writing to say like this is this is like the only female character in the movie but that's not part of like that's not like a problem or it's not an obstacle or anything like that except for when the dickhead talks to you then he's going to use it so he does that to her and then he does the thing to Kathy where he says i need you to ask me nicely so it's like it is again it's how jessup is is targeting the thing that either he perceives to be their weakness or that, you know, that is shown to be their weakness. And again, not weakness, but like the thing that he's like, what can I do to demean you? Yeah. Asserting dominance. He's trying to mess with them. Right. Exactly. Yeah. I, I also wrote that he says, I'll have to take cold showers until, until they elect some, some gal, gal president. Or I'm just mm-hmm. like, fuck you. Still yeah. waiting on that. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Wow. I totally agree with you. And uh, however, there is actually another moment where somebody makes a comment and it's Kathy and it's mm-hmm. early on. He has a few that are like, like offhanded. Yeah. Ca- ca- some casual misogyny from there. Right. Right. Um, but, but when she goes off on a tirade of like, if you handle this in the same slick ass fast food manner that you handle everything else, something's got to get missed. Mm-hmm. She has this whole long monologue and he stares at her and goes, wow, I'm sexually aroused. Mm-hmm. Commander," uh-huh. And she doesn't blink in yeah. response to him at all. <laughs> the line is in there for the same purpose. That you're talking about, Brian. We're right. not supposed to like Kathy in that moment. Right. We're supposed to be on her side. And I think that this script does a really good job of drawing the character of Galloway in such a way that when people are trying to mess with her, like Kathy is trying to do, like Jessup is trying to do, she is not, she does not blink. She is not able to be mm-hmm. intimidated. She is dogged in her purpose, which of course the script ultimately like pushes to a flaw almost in her case um but i love the the response there's there is a moment in the scene you're talking about with jessup where he says that whole thing and it like i'll just have to keep taking cold showers till they elect some gal president there's an action line here from sorkin in the script and it's Mm. this 
Joe's not upset. Joe's not mad, but she's going to ask her question till she gets an answer. Mm-hmm. Nice. And it's one of these moments where what he said is so inflammatory that you have to almost have a line of action for the response there from Galloway. Otherwise, the response might like any natural response. How would you be feeling at this moment? An actor would be tempted to go, oh, that would rattle me. But not in this case. That what that's what makes Galloway good at what she does. Right. And, and I think her performance shows that, too, because she does such a good job of being stone faced, but still being a human being. You know, it's like you could you could yeah. play this this role very one dimensionally. And that's not how she plays it at all. But she knows the moments where she has to not not give in at all. And she nails that. Mm-hmm. If I, if I have any kind of like critique of her character, it's not anything to do with gender. It's more of a Sorkin thing of just you know these kind of beings in his scripts, like you know, some of his West Wing characters that are just almost too pure. You know, like like mm-hmm. they're just they're just like right. raw. They're like raw idealism wrapped into a ball. <laughs> like, uh-huh. you know, right. It's like it's like why do you like them? Because they stand on a wall. You know, like this is <laughs> like nothing's this, this, gonna hurt you tonight. Yeah, not on gonna, my watch. Exactly. <laughs> Just, it's it's you know it's those moments i'm like it's like is this a real person right <laughs> like, like they're just so like a hundred percent this thing and like so earnest yeah <laughs> so like yes but i think there's also something interesting that that it's like i i agree those moments stand out to me but i think there's also you know sorkin i don't think is ever trying to present a portrait of reality in right. his sure. work right and so i think that's you know, sometimes it can still be too much and go over the top. But I feel like that's when that's why it can work for me is when the movie or the television show or whatever it is, isn't trying to portray a a hyper real vision of our world. And I think we talked about this a little bit on the social network, but I feel like that's why the West Wing works for me. The, the first four seasons and especially the first couple seasons is that it's like this magical land of like, what if politics that was <laughs> idealistic even for 1999? It seems so magical now. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's, it's, it's hyper real. Like it's, it's this other world in which people are different and characters don't have to be realistic. They can have mm-hmm. these kind of, you know, they're there for a purpose. They're there to tell a story. And I think for me anyway, when Sorkin work is transferred to a style that is trying to be more hyper real, like that's why the newsroom series stands out to me as, you know, it's it's Sorkin. It has that same kind of grandeur and there's this purity of and these people but it's shot kind of documentary style and it's supposed to look and feel really like an actual modern newsroom and kind of you know the studio 60 on the sunset strip i think was kind of trying to apply this idealistic vision of what a writing a late night comedy show could be but also trying to get it like to be a little bit believable and just those things kind of but heads for me in his work. Mm. And so I think he's more at home in some ways when he can go that crazy and like go that big and be that that pure with his ideas. Mm-hmm. But I also feel like he's toned that down a little bit in some of his more recent work Definitely. In, in the same way. It's crazy to me how much the newsroom was trying to just be the office, like just down to the name of the show. <laughs> and like, it's like documentary style, not like in the the high level stuff or whatever, but you have this guy whose name is Jim Harper and Jim Harper is in love with his coworker, but she's in a relationship with another coworker. And I'm just like, this is just the plot of the office. 
but I agree with you, Michael. I think the newsroom really didn't work for me because it felt like it should be shot in the West Wing style. Like it, West Wing mm. was shot in this very formal kind of cinematic style, which made it feel okay that the characters were speaking in Sorkin. Mm. And I think when you shoot something like a raw documentary or like mockumentary, it feels odd for them to be giving like Sorkin-esque speeches out of the blue. Mm-hmm. Well, and I think that Sorkin dialogue plays as a little more believable when it's in settings like a legal situation or right. during the West Wing where it's like, this yeah. is rarefied air that we are in, right? right. These are the smartest right. people in the world. They're military lawyers or they're the people running the country. You want to believe they're the smartest people in the yeah. world. Right, <laughs> right. <laughs> So it makes it makes sense that in a courtroom drama, even in something like, I don't know, like late night TV, like Studio 60, which you're citing as an example of something that doesn't work, Sorkin gravitates toward like sort of rarefied places where people in theory are smart and like can draw on a wide range of like literary references and sources and pop culture and whatever. And so... I think, you know, even in social network, it's like, well, they're all at Harvard. So they're like the smartest guys in the world. They're like creators of Facebook. And and then here they are in a deposition room. Of course, they're going to be smart in a deposition room. It helps craft that illusion a little bit um, where obviously this is not how courtroom drama, like this is not how courts actually go. <laughs> right, right. I mean, I have very limited experience. I was the foreman of a jury one time. Mm. Um, and so I did sit through a whole trial and, you know, it was part of a jury and everything. And I will tell you right now, it was nothing like this. No. <laughs> no. Nobody sounded very smart and it also <laughs> moved along very slowly. Uh, and nobody was like the logical points that, you know, I think some of the most delicious parts in the courtroom scenes of this movie are when Kathy is doing the logic and like, mm-hmm leaving you and the jury to put the pieces together and make connections Mm -hmm. that and he's like landing logical points which is how he eventually traps jessup right where he like gets him in sort of a logical bind those are the moments that make you feel smart when you watch it right and that make you really appreciate it that was not my experience of courtrooms at all but but that's how we want to think about those spaces and i think that's why it's such a good fit here and you know when sorkin's at his best Right. And like we we want the White House conversations to be Sorkin conversations. Right. We really do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it's something that Sorkin talked about in his uh, master class, which is that he's he said, I'm not interested in imitating the way people speak. He's like, I don't think that's a valuable skill to have, really. <laughs> All right, Sorkin. All right. <laughs> but but also, I mean, if you listen to a transcript of our podcasts, uh, we sound like crazy people, you know, like in in words you know think about the like the next time you're having a conversation with somebody how much you you say the same thing over again or you finish things 10 minutes after they started or you interrupt yourself and all that kind of stuff and that's fine and like you can do that in movies in ways that's interesting and stuff and i'm not i'm not saying one way or the other is better really but i'm just saying his point was that he he wants the dialogue to support the piece whatever whatever his theme is whatever the piece is all that kind of stuff he wants the dialogue to that's its primary goal and and obviously to entertain you and stuff. His primary goal is not, I think it was like when Sorkin first came out, people were like, he writes like people talk. And it's like, no, he doesn't. That's the last thing he does. <laughs> but the other thing he mentions is uh, he quotes, um, he, he's like, I want to do all the research of like all the lingo people use and all this kind of stuff so that 
you are you feel like you're in this world like you were saying with the west wing i'm mm-hmm. so that you feel immersed in that part of it more than the actual uh the musicality of the way people actually speak versus the more sort of artsy or artistic musicality of a Sorkin script. And he references uh, Aristotle's poetics where he says, a probable impossibility is preferable to an improbable possibility. So a probable impossibility is aliens show up with laser guns. So when one of them shoots somebody and they disintegrate, you're like, yeah, that makes sense because he's got a laser gun and I've seen alien things before. So like, it's impossible, but it's probable within this world. Mm, sure. Whereas a improbable possibility is when someone turns on the news and the exact thing that they want to see is like the TV is set to that channel and the news anchors just starting to say this thing. And it's like, yeah, the news is real and like all that stuff is real, but it's very improbable that they would turn it on and, and say that thing. Point of all that is I think that like, that's his sort of goal with his dialogue is that it's not about trying to make it real. It's about making it whatever he wants to make it. But then within that world, it all sort of fits together and pieces together. You know, it's like, I, Mm -hmm. I don't care. If the law is sound in this movie, if the law is actually if it, like lawyer breaks down a few good men or like doctor breaks down, <laughs> right. whatever. I'm like, I don't really care what the real world version of this is. What I care is what rules did you set up in the movie? What is this world you set up? And then is everything snapping together from there? Mm-hmm. Speaking of rules, the, he, he really gave himself a difficult job with this script, like choosing this kind of case and the military courtroom aspect of it mm-hmm. you know, just watching the movie and then you know working on the script and the edit and stuff it, it's like there's a lot to communicate both in the movie and then even in our video about the movie mm-hmm. <laughs> because uh he he chose a really difficult like subject matter to to explore in a court case it's not just about proving oh we found the evidence of the murder it's like we found evidence of the chain of command of this thing that's not in the right. rule books, but it is an unofficial <laughs> rule. Like it's, it's really interesting. And, and that's one of the reasons why I gravitated toward choosing this as a great example of a final battle because the case is so complicated. Sorkin and Reiner here, I think are really going out of their way to make sure we understand the rules. Like they go out of their way to make sure we understand the stakes. They remind us of the stakes like a hundred times where it's like, they're going to go to prison forever. Also, your dad's ghost will be mad at you. (laughs) (laughs) They remind us of that constantly of here's the personal stakes for Kathy. Um, Here is what's at stake for the clients. Like here's the stakes over and over again. Same thing with the rules. Once we get the rules of the courtroom, which are set up even before he gets in there, it's like, Hey, but you know, if you take this to court, you can't ask Kendrick or Jessup if they if they gave an order about it. They set up that rule even before it goes into the courtroom and the rules of the courtroom do not ever change. So the stakes don't change. The courtroom rules do not change. And they are set up over and over and over again. Because the case is so complicated, you have to be so grounded in all of that. And that's what allows the pressure to build in that third act, especially in that final showdown between, between now I'm doing it, <laughs> Kathy and Jessup. Um, <laughs> when you're no longer changing the rules and the stakes are already well-established, that leaves you free to just build the pressure 
and you're no longer having to do any expository work mm -hmm. in the third act, which is really smart screenwriting. I pulled a quote from Roger Ebert because when this movie came out, he actually didn't like it very much because he thought it was overly explainy and handholdy to the mm. audience. He said, in many ways, this is a good film with the potential to be even better than that. The flaws are mostly at the screenplay level. The film doesn't make us work. It doesn't allow us to figure out things for ourselves. It is afraid we'll miss things if they are not spelled out. Hmm, interesting. To which I say, how would anybody follow it otherwise? Yeah, right. <laughs> like we would yeah, miss right. things. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that almost feels like like watching it, expecting it to be a different movie. Because sure. it, it doesn't feel like the kind of courtroom drama where you're, where you're trying to solve the mystery, a mystery right. right like right. it's it feels like as we talked about before like you kind of know the bad guys did it and so it's about how can you trap the bad guys yeah so i i do think you need all that exposition as you were saying trisha to to set it up so we understand what's happening when that trap battle happens mm. trap battle trap battle <laughs> <laughs> you know the trap definitely battle between tom cruise and jack nicholson yeah. that's definitely a music Remix. genre yeah. yeah. Um, well, and, and now that I think about it, it is really brilliant to find a courtroom in which, like, the main question that needs to be answered cannot be asked. Like, that, right. I wonder, like, where he started in the inception of this idea. Like, did he begin with, like, wanting to find a way to have a case in which, like, that was the problem? I, I'm, I'm, it's an interesting. You can't ask the witness the question. Right. Like, because <laughs> yeah. that, that provides a great, uh, it's a great device. Climax. Yeah. 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 I think it's based on uh, an actual event, and mm. I think it was something like his his sister recommended that he like research it and write something about it. Both of his siblings are lawyers. Just want to say oh, that, that mm -hmm. explains that makes mm. so much so sense. Much <laughs> like so much like yeah. like yeah. he could have been a lawyer or something else, and like he became like the most lawyery screenwriter. Yeah. Correct. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> Real quick before we wrap up, I just wanted to say, since we talked so much about screenwriting with this movie, obviously, just Rob Reiner's directing. I really mm -hmm. love he he has a, does a great job of capturing a, a feel and a mood in his movies. You get a sense of like the weather, the city, the time of day. Everything just feels tangible. You know, um, just watched uh, as I mentioned recently, I watched It Follows and. The, the forget about like the plot of it or that it's a horror movie or anything like that it's just like they're in suburbia that reminded me of my neighborhood growing up and whatever cameras they used in time of day and d disaster piece electronic score i was just like i want to live in the world of this movie you know and i think that that's what a few good men does and rob reiner does that with when harry met sally stand by me even something like princess bride which is a fantasy but it's a fantasy that feels again like tangible it doesn't feel like it's very um you know what's the word sort of cookie cuttery like uh, over effecty over digitally you know that kind of thing but uh but yeah there's something to it that just feels there's like a warmth to it that i really like it reminds me that scene where um kathy is walking with uh weinberg mm -hmm. um and uh lieutenant weinberg has his like daughter you know his baby daughter mm -hmm. in the stroller and they're walking down the street and it's fall and it, like all the trees have this yep. like, beautiful fall color to them and the ground is covered in fallen leaves and they're in presumably weinberg's neighborhood right and that scene in the script is originally supposed to be inside weinberg's house mm -hmm. and they're supposed to be just like sitting in the nursery not moving and 
So it's obviously pure Rob Reiner. Like, let's pull that scene out of there, create some atmosphere with this um, and like give them a place to go, which, you know, it's not like a walk and talk in the way that we think about in a Sorkin-y way, Mm -hmm. but it does exactly what you're talking about, which is flesh out that world. And I think a lot too about the opening sequence here, which is also just pure Rob Reiner with the the credits, with the Marine Mm -hmm. Corps. It's actually not even over the credits. It's right after the ending credits, but it's the Marine Corps like gun. I'm sorry. I don't know what they're called. They're like the drill, whoever they are with, mm. with the rifles, mm-hmm. right? The flip, or they're the doing flippy rifles. It's like, it's like a parade <laughs> yeah. drill, I guess. Um, it's really intense. Yeah, it <laughs> yeah. is. It's really cool. Uh, it's really cool, but it, it helps to create this sense of the world where mm-hmm. this is a, a military world of immaculate neatness and precision yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. and that primes us for everything that is about to follow which is the rigidness of this world and how the limited areas in which the characters can maneuver and behave and everything and so a lot of those touches that aren't in the script you can tell are straight from rob reiner and the direction here so i think a lot of the times we think about quote unquote direction is just like, where is the camera set up and how is it moving? Mm-hmm. And direction encompasses all of this other stuff where we talked about the performances, but also just these other choices of does the scene need to be in this room? Can we use it to to create a texture for the movie or a feel for the movie? It's lovely. And I think it those things hold up really well, mm-hmm. whereas a lot of the other things I think sometimes do not. Also, the courtroom, the way the courtroom is shot and just mm-hmm. the kind of color palette of the courtroom and the warmth of the lighting, I think Reiner kind of like mm-hmm. imbues the courtroom with like kind of a sense of goodness. Mm-hmm. Like it's it's not a cold, like punishing place, but rather yeah. like it's the Sorkin ideal of justice. You know, it's it's actually like the best version of itself, you know. Like a sacred space. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. It's very mm-hmm. lovingly shot. Mm-hmm. I feel like everything you're highlighting, Trisha, is why every time I watch this movie by the end, I'm just like that was just a good movie. Yeah. Like, it's just a good movie. Mm-hmm. And I feel like we don't have a ton of those. Like, there's, <laughs> I mean, like, obviously, right? But the attention to just telling the story as best as possible. And I think maybe it is kind of this, I feel like modern movies have to be kind of clever and have to be kind of doing a twist on a thing or we're going to find some reason to justify this movie's existence. Like, and yeah, why like, are you making mm. this movie? You got to do something like a little weird or special to justify right. Right. why you should be a director or a filmmaker. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and just like like you were saying with this choice to begin it with, you know, this establishing of the military world, like it's not flashy. It's not, you know, you wouldn't put that in like a trailer to like get people into this. I don't know. It's just, it's there to tell the story. It's there to frame the things that we're going to care about in the story. And it's just a smart storytelling decision. And this movie is filled with those and it's refreshing in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Why don't we go around and say what lessons we're going to take from A Few Good Men. Alex, do you want to start us off? My lesson was I really am inspired by 
what I mentioned earlier, where the second viewing of the film, I got so much more out of it. And it, it wasn't like other second viewings of films where sometimes it's like, oh, I missed like key plot details that I'm hearing them now. The things that I was getting on the second viewing were just like I was delighting in the language. I was delighting in just the pure rhythm of the dialogue and the cleverness of the dialogue. And that was just an inspiration to me of like, you know, reading more plays, like like going mm. to the world of theater once in a while, because it is all about that in the world of theater and how fun to, you know, on top of just telling a good cinematic story, having the actual language, the actual dialogue be that rich that you get layers out of it the more times you view something. So that's my lesson is just, yeah, you know, theater is a is a, also a good source for inspiration along with literature and everywhere else we get ideas for movies. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Read more plays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. Trisha, what about you? I want to talk a little bit about the character web in this movie mm. because all of the supporting characters are brilliantly designed um, in relationship to the theme of the movie. So thinking about how Demi Moore is there to, you know, essentially be an ally for Kathy and she's you know ultimately like ends up on the legal team and everything but her viewpoint on the theme is unique and it's pretty extreme and it's pretty rigid and she like is absolutely sure that they don't belong in jail that they did the right thing and that they have to go to court and make an argument and it portrays like one extreme end of sort of you know we talked about her idealism and I think that that's a really good place on the character web to see how her idealism goes. Then we have somebody like Weinberg, who is also on Kathy's team, but does not at all agree with the sort of conceptual like ideology of Demi Moore's character uh, of Galloway, where, you know, they have that exchange where like, why do you like them so much? Why do you hate them so much? Right. And the whole time we see that Weinberg is trying to get out of he doesn't want to be a part of this case because he really thinks that his, the clients there that Dawson and Downey did the wrong thing and they deserve to be punished. Mm -hmm. And so he is also providing this like sort of harmony to what Kathy already thinks, where Kathy doesn't know what he thinks, but he's getting two different opinions um, from, from Galloway and from Weinberg. Then on the other side, you have Kendrick, who is an even more extreme version of Jessup in some ways, it feels mm -hmm. like, right? Where he's so dogmatic and like he's almost fanatical right mm -hmm. about being a marine and we don't get a lot of time with him Kiefer Sutherland is is great <laughs> like in this role we don't get a lot of time with him but again we're seeing like the most extreme version of this viewpoint um where nothing should be challenged right where he's like the only authority I know of is the King James Bible and like and uh Jessup and so the character web is so cleverly designed because not only do we get all of this range um that makes us think about the themes where we're getting all these different voices chiming in on the themes, but also putting these characters in a room loads every scene with conflict mm -hmm. and makes right. every scene of dialogue interesting. It is spectacular. Oh, and I didn't even mention Ross. Mm -hmm. Kevin Bacon is like another right. great example where he's Kathy's buddy and they're friends and we see that they're friends, but they're being pitted against each other in the courtroom. And he actually fundamentally agrees where he says it. Like he's like, I don't think your boys belong in jail, but that's not my job right now. I have mm -hmm. to do what I have to do, which is why my favorite line in this whole movie is you're a lousy fucking softball player, Jack. <laughs> because it, <laughs> I mean, it's very silly, but it speaks to their personal relationship where this is like the worst insult Kathy can think of, right? Where he can't say he's a bad lawyer. He's like, 
whatever. He's just mad. So he lashes out about against his softball game. I don't know. I love all of it. It's, mm-hmm. They're great characters in any one yeah. of these. That's why when you look at the cast list for something like this or any Sorkin movie, you just see a stack of talent mm-hmm. because every character from the tiniest to the highest are just really three-dimensional, well-rounded characters that all have moments and interesting things to say. Mm-hmm. Well, even on he's kind of on the Jessup team, he's got this interesting balance of he's got mm-hmm. he's got oh, yeah, Markinson. Keep, he's got Markinson right. on one side and, and Kendrick on the other. So yeah, there's there's a lot of symmetry there. It's mm-hmm. really, really well done. Yeah, for sure. And it and it as we've talked about many times before, it makes it so that you understand why Kathy has changed, right? You're surrounding right. him with all these viewpoints mm-hmm. and he gets those moments, like you're saying, Trisha, like all of them have moments to affect his belief system so that by the end not only have we gotten all the like exposition done but like we get we understand how much he's changed and that he like is ready to fight for this thing and so it just makes it so intense and really really good yeah brian how about you trish i was hoping you weren't going to mention ross because that's what i was going to talk about i was was going to swoop (laughs) in and pluck that out no but yeah it is about them being kind of buddies with this like healthy working rivalry Mm mm-hmm but then their relationship gets more tense as the story goes. And I just I like that sort of like healthy antagonism. Obviously, any two characters in the movie are hopefully going to have conflict no matter how close they are. But this is this is this sort of like mid-tagonist, you know, it's like yeah. <laughs> it allows for this three dimensionality, I think, that uh, that you you don't know where things are going to go. It allows for an unpredictability too, where it's like they could, like this trial could be the end of their friendship right. or it could not. And you never know, like one of them could totally screw the one, uh, other one over in their personal lives, not just their professional lives. And obviously that kind of relationship is easier to do in a sort of courtroom drama type thing where it's like, well, we have to be sort of our on stage and off stage personalities and stuff. But I do think that that is a healthy kind of character to put in your movie, which is a character who's not, it's, I mean, how easy is it to make Ross be just the bad guy? Right. You know? right. Um, like the other bad guy, other than Jessup, the sort of like what Kendrick is, but as, as the, you know, the prosecutor and instead you get just a much more, you get a much more pleasant relationship, pleasant in terms of, just to watch it, you know, mm-hmm. um, but you also get uh, just a just a more three dimensional, realistic feeling scenario out of that. And I love the last moment we get with Ross, too, where he's like, I got to go arrest Kendrick. Yeah. <laughs> and, right. and he's like, oh, yeah. tell him hi from me. Like, <laughs> it's great. It, yeah. it shows how ultimately that Kevin Bacon character isn't like super emotionally attached to no. the outcome he's seeking. He's just doing his doing his job. He's being a good <laughs> yeah. lawyer. Yeah. yeah. Well, and like you're saying, Brian, by making him not just be, you know, a a one dimensional villain, it lends weight to the warnings that Ross gives to Kathy. Yeah, exactly. Where it's like, he's looking out for you. Like, this is actually good (laughs) advice that maybe you should be following. Mm -hmm, And so we understand that as the audience, when he chooses not to follow that advice, that it's extra dangerous. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Michael? I'm interested, if I get some free time, to sit down with the script of this film and if i can get my hands on the script of the trial of the chicago seven mm-hmm. uh just sit down and scene by scene go through and compare them in, in an effort to kind of look at how sorkin's use of all these storytelling techniques has changed not so much to see like is one better or the other but just to have 
the spectrum of these things. You know, in this courtroom drama format, as we've talked about, there's this pressure, there's a, a boundary that you can't go outside of. So it's ripe um, for conflict. But there's also, you know, subtext, like characters are have given this oath where they have to say the truth. And mm -hmm. but we know that that doesn't always happen. Mm -hmm. And, you know, in, in this film, we just kind of see them on the stand. But in the social network and other Sorkin courtroom drama things, sometimes we do get to see what actually happened. And so we're kind of, he's toying with when you reveal what information to the audience. Yeah. And I feel like he's kind of a, a master of that and that this courtroom drama format really draws attention to that of like, when are you going to show the audience the crime? When are you going to, you know, let them know who's the good guy or the bad guy? And just, you can play with all of that in so many ways. Mm -hmm. And so I think studying that and extracting all those different methods, I think is a useful exercise. And just because his scenes, there's so many Sorkin scenes in all of his films that aren't a standard, you know, two page movie scene where it's like right. the scene has mm -hmm. to kind of get us from A to B and hopefully there's another layer, but we're just kind of moving along. Like a right. Sorkin scene is like, we're, you're going to sit here and you're going to be in the scene for a bit and there's going to be callbacks. And there's going to be all these layers happening. So it really is like you can pick any scene and all of the elements of drama are in there. And so you can sit with it and really pull it apart. And so I think that's, it can be daunting maybe if you're not super into Sorkin or not familiar, but I think mm. there's just a lot of because his style is his style, if you tune into that wavelength, there's just a ton you can learn that's applicable to everything mm -hmm. in any kind of writing. And I won't get into this too much, but there are some things that got cut from here, from the screenplay to the movie. And those are also instructive, right? So mm -hmm. looking at ways that the screenplay differs from what ended up on screen, which goes back to Rob Reiner's directorial touch here. Mm -hmm. So like the main thing that got cut was there's more romantic entanglement between Kathy and Galloway and in, in the play and in the screenplay. And it got cut for the screen, which I think is the right call because it keeps the focus on the trial. Mm -hmm. And so I think that having, in the same way that Alex's lesson is like read more plays, I just feel like this is a great example of like read more screenplay Right. And if we have the movie and you have the screenplay, like how valuable and instructive to look at them both. Yeah, right. 100%. So why don't we go around and say what we've been watching recently? I'm going to just talk about the trial of the Chicago 7 because I, I watched <laughs> that and we're going while we're on the topic. And uh, yeah, it's I thought it was really, really good. As soon as I heard way back when that Sorkin was going to start directing things, I had a kind of, oh, no reaction <laughs> because i think it's important for creators to have external sources of discipline to maybe be able to tell you when you're doing a thing too much mm -hmm. or not enough or just you know collaboration is mm -hmm. good and sorkin is himself a force to be reckoned with so i was kind of afraid that left unchecked it might just be a mess and i liked molly's game it was there was more restraint than i was imagining there might be mm -hmm. and for trial of chicago 7 i was really impressed with the directing because yeah. it it did feel like the kind of self-discipline that one would strive to have as a, a creator and you know if you wrote something and we know how much sorkin loves his words and all these things i think it could have just gone wrong in so many ways but i think it was actually um, the filmmaking was really smart and impressive. And I think it's clear that he, you know, sought advice from other people and was being smart about, mm -hmm. you know, taking the directing 
really seriously as its own kind of part of the filmmaking process. Yeah. So it's really good because the writing is really good. The directing I was really impressed with. And the subject matter is really interesting for me, who was obviously not alive when all that was happening. Mm. Um, But also my mom watched it and said it was really interesting seeing, you know, events from one's life turned into a movie. Uh, I'm sure we'll get to experience that at some point as well. Uh This Um, week, for example. (laughs) Pick a random week of 2020 and make a TV series. It's currently November 6th as we uh, record this. (laughs) (laughs) FYI. So anyway, that's that's what I watched. And it was kind of fortuitous that we were also working on A Few Good Men because having that in my head, I think, just made the experience of watching uh, Chicago 7 even better. Nice. Also, if you want to see more of that story, um, I recommend Steal This Movie uh, from 2000 with Vincent D'Onofrio as Abby Hoffman. Mm. Uh, And Jeannie Garofalo is also in it. Kevin Pollack is also in it and a few other people. Yeah. Mm. Very cool. Awesome. Well, Brian, what have you been watching? All right. So I promise this is my last from my horror binge from October. Uh, (laughs) But I had to mention Train to Busan, uh, which I had. Yeah, I'd heard people recommend for the past four years um came out in 2016 it's a korean zombie film where Mm -hmm. a zombie apocalypse breaks out just as the main characters are getting on to a train and that's where most of the action takes place and you know and of course so you have the the cars and the separation of the cars and and all this kind of thing and then eventually like you know there's a train station involved and i won't say too much but just as an action horror movie it's a lot of fun just like the pacing is really excellent you're always on the edge of your seat it does a lot of really smart twists and turns and that kind of thing but like a lot of the best movies coming out of korea recently it has a lot to say about the class system and family and you know themes that make it more than just a zombie movie it's sort of like what i wanted snowpiercer to be if, in terms of Korean movies set on trains that, that want to talk about class system. It was like Snowpiercer was like trying so hard to uh, to sort of push these everything that he wanted to say and all that kind of stuff. And Train to Busan was like, no, this is a zombie movie, but we're also going to use the premise to talk about some things that we want to talk about here. And I so uh, I really respect that, and it's just a really fun watch. Nice, awesome. That yeah. sounds cool. Trisha, what about you? So I have another 2020 movie for you all. Um, I saw the movie Tesla. Mm, oh, yeah. Which is the Ethan Hawke uh, version of the, a Tesla biopic mm. um, directed by Michael uh, Almereda and also starring Kyle MacLachlan as Edison. It is really interesting. So this movie came out at Sundance, uh, premiered at Sundance this year. And I was there and I really tried hard to get in to see it and was not able to. But I did go to a panel at Sundance that was a historical science in film panel Mm. which I feel like is Mm. something they made just for me it was like (laughs) all of my dreams coming true um it was really interesting so Ethan Hawke and Michael Almereda uh talked about this movie a little bit on that panel and I was really interested to see it it is a fascinating and very odd example of a quote-unquote historical science in film movie Uh because like on that panel we were you know that we like watched clips from the theory of everything and hidden figures and like, you know, they're talking, you know, the scientists that were also on the panel were talking about how do you portray science in film? It's usually a, a man at a blackboard, like scribbling furiously. And that's what science in film looks like. And this example, Tesla is not at all like that. It is very stylized. It's very odd. There's lots of modern music in it. Mm. And there's hmm. a, like a lot of uh, 
context where there's a supporting character who looks straight into like we cut to her sometimes and she is dressed in her period outfit but she's looking straight into camera and she's got her laptop with her and she's like here's the thing about tesla if you google his name you can find out this information about him it's very unusual it's hyper stylized and Uh, there's lots of other like projections instead of um like built sets and things it's where it's like theatrical Hmm. in an odd way Hmm. it's an interesting example of how to make a historical science movie for five billion (laughs) dollars And Ethan Interesting. Hawke is, five <laughs> million. Five million. That's it. it. Sounded like you said billion. Yeah, no, no. Like, no, it's it's a low budget period movie, and you know, I think we expect these like historical science movies to be this prestige thing instead of being portraits of complicated people, which is very much more what this is. So. Um, I feel like it had got really mixed reviews, but you can, you rent it. I think it is on Apple. I think you can get it on Amazon as well, but it's just a really interesting and interesting example of this very unusual material. I don't know. (laughs) It's interesting and unusual. Uh That's not clear. (laughs) Not a glowing recommendation, but interesting. Worth watching for sure. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds cool. I like anything that starts to mess with the media. Oh, it messes with it a lot. All all that stuff. That's cool. Uh, All right. And Alex, what have you been watching recently? So last night to get my mind off of election results, I watched Mm -hmm. Possessor, (laughs) which is also from Sundance. Yeah. Brandon Cronenberg uh, sci-fi horror film. Um, Mm. uh, The Cronenberg is because he's related to uh, David Cronenberg. That's his father. And he has inherited uh, his father's, uh, I guess, genetic predisposition uh, for body horror. (laughs) uh, But it was a really interesting, cool art film. You know, Possessor, it's like, it is extremely violent and there's a lot of on-screen gore, but it's all shot in this really almost like modern art way. Um, It's, it's, it's beautifully done. And it's, there's like amazing use of like bold color and lighting. And the story itself is like, you know, from a screenplay perspective, is not an amazing story, but the sci-fi concept and the execution by the actors of that concept um, was really great. So if you're in the mood for a kind of uh, atmospheric, very like modern art uh, gore fest, check out <laughs> Possessor. <laughs> but but uh, yeah, but the actors include uh, Christopher Abbott, um, Andrea Risenborough, is that how you say your name? Risborough, yeah. Risborough, Jennifer Jason Lee, and Sean Bean. So nice. It's, it's a really good cast. Uh, you just got to be down for some really intense. But there's a great Sean Bean death. There. I was going to say it's <laughs> the yeah. most gory. <laughs> Spoiler alert. <laughs> Possessor. Yeah. That's just how he takes roles now. Like, how is this going to look in a super? Is cut? this a good death? Yeah. yeah. Right. <laughs> It's great. That makes me want to watch Lord of the Rings. That was the first Sean Bean death that I saw. Ooh, we're so very um, close. So close. We're so very close. Yep. Just a few more patrons. Awesome. Well, this has been our conversation about A Few Good Men. Beyond the Screenplay is produced by Vince Major. Our editor is Eric Schneider. I've been joined today by the Lessons from Screenplay team, Trisha Arand, Brian Fittner, and Alex Cayeros. I am Michael Tucker. You can find all of our Twitter handles in the show notes. Feel free to reach out and say hi. And thank you, of course, and as always, to the patrons who support the show and make it possible. Thank you for listening. And we'll see you in the next episode. Bye, everybody. Bye-bye. Bye. 
Colonel, I have just one more question before I call Airman O'Malley and Airman Perez. If you gave an order that Santiago wasn't to be touched and your orders are always followed, then why would he be in danger? Why would it be necessary to transfer him off the base? Private Santiago was a substandard Marine. He was being transferred off the base because... But that's not what you said. You said that he was being transferred because he was in grave danger. Yes, that's correct. But... You said have... he, he was in danger. I said grave danger. You said... Yes, I other... recall what I said. I can have your court reporter read back your... I know what I said. I don't need it read back to me like I'm a damn... Then why the two orders, Colonel? Why did you give... The- Sometimes men take matters into their own hands. No, sir. You made it clear just a moment ago that your men never take matters into their own hands. Your men follow orders or people die. So Santiago shouldn't have been in any danger at all. Should he have, Colonel? You little bastard. Your Honor, I have to ask for a recess. To- I'd like an answer to the question, Judge. The court will wait for an answer. If Kendrick told his men that Santiago wasn't to be judged, then why did he have to be transferred? Colonel? Kendrick ordered the code red, didn't he? Because that's what you told Kendrick to do. Object. Counsel. And when it went bad, you cut these guys loose. Your Honor. That'll be all, Counsel. You had Markinson sign a phony transfer order. Judge. You doctored the logbooks. Damn it, Kathy. I'll ask for the fourth time. You ordered. You want answers. I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers. I want the truth. You can't handle the truth. Son, we live in a world that has walls, and those walls have to be guarded by men with guns. Who's going to do it? You? You, Lieutenant Weinberg? I have a greater responsibility than you can possibly fathom. You weep for Santiago and you curse the Marines. You have that luxury. You have the luxury of not knowing what I know. That Santiago's death, while tragic, probably saved lives. And my existence, while grotesque and incomprehensible to you, saves lives. You don't want the truth. Because deep down in places you don't talk about at parties, you want me on that wall. You need me there. We use words like honor, code, loyalty. We use these words as the backbone to a life spent defending something. You use them as a punchline. I have neither the time nor the inclination to explain myself to a man who rises and sleeps under the blanket of the very freedom I provide, then questions the manner in which I provide it. I'd prefer you just said thank you and went on your way. Otherwise, I suggest you pick up a weapon and stand a post. Either way, I don't give a damn what you think you're entitled to. Did you order the code red? I did the job you sent me to do. Did you order the code red? You're goddamn right I did. (laughs) (laughs) Mic drop. And cut. (laughs) 